Hey there, this is Dennis Anyone with Dennis Hensley, a podcast about making things up and making things happen. My guest today is Howie Scora. He's a writer and a good friend of mine. He's in my writing group. And he has a play that he's written that is about to premiere in Los Angeles on June 6th. It's called Miserable with an Ocean View. And I'm talking to Howie about that and about all other kinds of fun things. Uh, but first, a little plug. Um, check out the website, DennisAnyone.net. You can do a lot of fun things there. You can subscribe for my newsletter. You can put a little uh, donation in the tip jar that helps keep the podcast free. And you can see pictures that go with different podcasts. Sometimes I talk about things and they're all on there. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Hensley Dennis. You can um, like the Dennis Anyone Facebook page. That would be awesome. And um, I guess that's about it. Without any further ado, here is my good friend, Howie Scora. All right, I am here in my home in the booth of truth with my good friend, Howie Scora. Do you prefer Howie or Howard? Howie. Howie Scora. Am I pronouncing your last name right? I've you, known you, you for you like get, five yeah, years. Yeah, no, it's I nailed it. Nailed it. Nailed it. Nailed it. You nailed it. Howie is in my writing group, and he's also uh, got a new play, a play that you've written that is going to premiere here in Los Angeles. Yes. Called Miserable with an Ocean View. Yes. You're making it happen. Thank you, sir. You know what you're doing to that play? What? You're mounting it. <laughs> you're totally mounting it. And I'm, I'm self-mounting. You're self-mounting. I'm self-mounting. I've given myself a yes. You gave yourself a yes, which I is something we talk yes. about a lot. Sometimes you have to give yourself a yes. I'm yes. so proud of you Thank for doing you. that. Thank you. And we've seen the play grow in our writers group and the writing of it, and I've been to readings, and it's so funny. Um, why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about what it's about? Okay, sure. It's, a, it's about... Um, it's about a guy, uh, his name is Jeff Shapiro, and he lives in San Francisco, and he's a gay man, and he, uh, he goes back to Long Island, which is where he's from. Right. He goes back to Long Beach, Long Island, uh, because even though he's out and pretty much everyone in his family knows, he's never really come out to his mom. Right. And his mom has this disorder called supernuclear palsy, and she can't speak anymore. She she really can't speak, and, and it's being played by uh, Patty McCormick, who played... Uh, who, went, who got nominated for an Oscar for The Bad Seed. Wow. Yeah. As the little girl. Yeah, well, she's not the little girl anymore. Right, but, but she, she plays wow. this, She plays this mom from hell who's yeah. just been awful and has kind of been emotionally abusive to all of her children. And it's kind of cool because we don't get to see that part of this woman. She's kind of silent. Right. But, but the power in it is that even though she's silent, you see the devastation. You get to see dysfunction from a kind of an interesting perspective because you get to see... Yeah. The debris of the three children, and all three of the children are wounded in their own way. And but she's still there. There's like the hurricane doesn't leave. She's just sitting there. She's just gone quiet. But she's still up. She's a presence in the play. She's physically there. Yeah. Well, that's what was so cool was I needed to we needed to get an actress who got the part, namely because right. you know an actor, a less sophisticated actor, would look at the part and go, "Well, I have no dialogue." Like right. Because you know actors when they look at they scripts, count their lines. Yeah. They're like so you know literally Patty be like this is bullshit. There's two. Yeah. Well, I have two lines. Yeah. Like in the, the whole. Play play but she really is the center of the play and it's all communicating through nonverbal and yeah. looks and and what i love about it is because it, it shows how when we go home uh our parents still control us even if they couldn't speak just from looks and gestures and i mean and she can communicate with a pad where she writes just words right it's kind of um so yeah, that's what's so cool about it is Patty is is really kind of going full force in this performance. Well, I, I know from my own experience and other friends, sometimes you you think you're you've evolved to a certain place, but you go back to old environments like your high school reunion or your family, and you just go right back to what 
it always was that dynamic. And you're like, I'm be, I'm beyond, I'm going to be different. I'm going to, I'm evolved. Yeah. But uh, most of, most of my writing is usually about that because yeah. I, I just, um, <laughs> yeah. Whenever, um, I'm always kind of amazed at, you know, I think I've come so far and then I'll go back and I completely regress and I can't stand the person that I become. And, wow. And I'm just like stunned by my own behavior. Really? Yeah. What was the germ of the play? When was the what was the first thing you thought about? <laughs> I want to write this this scene this moment. Uh, it's actually it's based on a lot of truths. Even though the play is a complete blow up, um, my mom actually did have this disorder, and my mom was kind of a you know she was a powerhouse in terms of her mouth. She is she a, still with us? She she passed. I'm sorry. Okay. It's okay. Thank you. And um, so you know I always kind of wanted this certain relationship with my mother and, you know, as fate would have it, she got this disorder where she couldn't speak anymore. And it was weird because I finally had the relationship that I wanted with her, but it was at a really horrible cost because she couldn't talk. Right. But because she couldn't talk, she couldn't like blow up and, you know, ruin a visit. She couldn't say awful things. Yeah. So it she was, could write them. Was she, she, was she writing No, no, no. I, I, I completely blew this. Yeah. I made this mother much worse than my I mom see. ever was. Like, it's like, and I warned my siblings about that. <laughs> like, are they going to come? Your siblings? They, they are going to come. And um, oh my goodness! Yeah, yeah. there's siblings in the show as well. Yeah, but luckily it's like I only have I have two sisters, and there's a brother character and a sister yeah. character, and it's not, you know, it's kind of a there's elements of my family, but it's it's totally blo- you know it's totally yeah. blown up. It's 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 totally a creation on its own now. Now you, you when did you start writing it? Um, I started well, it started as a novel actually, right? And and um, and it was kind of therapy uh, when my mom was passing, and I kind of put the novel away, and I, I never finished the novel. And then uh, I, I finally was like, you know, I always knew it was the thing I wanted to write. Like, it was the most personal project to me. And right. I finally I finally kind of came back to it um, like six months ago. And I, the, play got, the play got written really fast. I developed it at this place called The Actor's Gym, which is run by... Bobby Moresco, who's kind of been my mentor for a while. Right on. And um, so I would have actors read it every week. I would write 10 pages at a time. And if I know I'm writing for actors, I'll write much faster. Right. And better because I, you know, whereas if I'm left to my own devices, I'll never finish. And then when did you decide to pull the trigger and just mount it? Uh, It just so happened I was developing it at the Whitefire Theater and the guy around the theater really liked what was coming along and... We just started talking, and he's like, well, you should put this up. And so it, it literally just happened super easy. Wow. Like, it just all kind of came together. I love it. Yeah. What's it been like in the rehearsal process? Um, it's been... Because Jim Fall is directing it, our Jim, friend. Jim is directing it. Um, we're still so early in the rehearsal process. I've only been to about, you know, three or four right now. Right. But it's um, it's been amazing just watching, uh, you know, the actors we have. Are, we've got this amazing cast. So not only... Do we have um, Patty? Uh, we have Paul Aaliyah, who's playing the lead, Jeff. I met him once in a coffee bean. Yeah. And we just struck up a conversation. I, I didn't... I, but And he was really cute and nice. Yeah, he's he's perfect for the lead. Yeah. Because he's but we so... Have, we, have a, we have a relationship in a coffee bean that wasn't about meeting through friends or anything. Yeah. Just something... We just struck it up. Oh, so you didn't even know... No. Oh, wow. We just start talking. Yeah, he's really personable. He's a really yeah. funny... Funny, sweet guy, and I kind of needed that because because even like the lead character Jeff, he's not, um, you know, he does some really awful things in the play. Like he's, um, and so I needed somebody really, really likable 
Right. So that we could kind of go on that journey with him. Because it's like nobody in the play, it's it's basically a play all about narcissists. So everybody in the play is kind of me, me, me. And right. so you want to go on that journey with somebody that you don't hate. And right. he makes the character so likable, like, it's he's forgiven. Like You it's let forgiven. him off the hook. Yeah, you let That's him off good. the hook. That's good. And Drew Drogi, former podcast guest, is Drew, in it. Drew Drogi, who actually, and who was on Where the Bears Are a season after I was. Right on. And um, Drew is hysterical. Drew plays, um, well, I might as well just say, so... Part of this, I, I didn't fully tell the story. So, so what happens is Jeff moves home to kind of take care of his mom, right? And finally come out to her, right? Even though kind of everybody else in the family knows he's been an out gay man for like fifteen years, right? But he needs this moment, yeah. And and you know, I kind of what I people are like, well, isn't that cliched or isn't that? But but I still know tons of gay men who are very out in their lives. But there's one person, right? Be it for this reason or that reason, they just don't deal with it. Right. And so that's kind of what I wanted. I didn't want a full like coming out story. I just wanted that one person. Right. And um and so that and, and that's not what the story is completely about actually. But um Drew plays his uh, <laughs> Jeff gets stuck in a, a a guest room with this kind of um clown, this French clown that starts to talk to him. So the clown is played by Drew. It's it's basically in Jeff's imagination. Right. And the clown is basically, it's the conversation every gay man has with himself about, you know, it's the, it, it, when you're gay and you have to come out, there's an inner dialogue that's stronger than I think straight people have. Because you have to kind of, um, you have to examine your feelings and kind of look at how they're inconsistent with how things are supposed to go. Right. So it's kind of what's called the, the median sense of uh, the I and the me. The conversation with the, by the two sides of the psyche is more pronounced yeah. for gay people usually. Because you're battling within yourself a little bit. Yeah, you're battling with yourself. You're battling what society says. You're battling what yeah. family says. In other words, your internal experience is inconsistent with what the world is telling you you should be. I love it. So, yeah. So that's what kind of fascinated me about writing this alter ego was because I I don't think it's been explored enough that, yeah, when people come out, there's a reason. It's it's We come out because there's a... There's a conflict. There's an inner conflict right. going on. And we I can't take of, it anymore. We yeah, can't. Yeah. We want to be. We want to be honest with who we are. Yes. But you know what? But th- still, we are. You, there's two sides of everything. Right. Like, oh, what's the big deal? Like, who cares? Why do I have to tell her? So right. what if she dies before I tell her? Right. And and that's the other thing that I thought was interesting about it is why it's not just a. It's it's also about is he going to tell her before she drops dead? Right. There's a ticking clock. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's also um, her, happens to be her heart. Yes. Yeah. And, I love um, it. Yeah, so so Drew plays the clown in it. Yeah, who um, who kind of who becomes his 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 good friend and and also provides him a lot of tough love and he's really foul mouthed and awful and yeah and Drew is hysterical in it. And I can't wait. Yeah, yeah. I'm so excited. Uh, me too. Yeah, Thank so you. cool. Thanks. Now you made a big change in your life recently. You were working at a at a more of like a nine to five job, or a, yeah. I don't know what the hours were. Yeah, and you were managing a gym. I was I was the fitness manager at Gold's Gym Venice for six years, and then you were like, you know what? This I need to be more creatively fulfilled, <laughs> right? Well, yeah, I, I you know, and it's interesting because everybody in our writers group kind of struggles with this on some level, and my right, you know. I kind of had a realization. I'm like, I, you know, being a struggling artist, I got to a point where I was like, okay, I'm just getting a job. And, um, I just was like, oh, you know, I'll, I'll still write. And then slowly but surely things stopped. Like right. I stopped going to one writer's group. I stopped going to another's writer's group. 
And next thing I knew, I would just be too tired. And it right. just kind of... And then what happened was is... Um, so what you're saying is if I take the job at Chipotle, <laughs> I'm not going to write anymore? That's no, that's not... You know what? And that's what drives me crazy is I read tons of stories of like, you know, Paul Haggis like worked a full-time job and then wrote at night and then right. Lawrence, like Lawrence Kasdan did like... Right. And I hate them because like I, you know, I thought I could do it all and I couldn't. And so right. I kind of... After six years of... Um, and it's funny because I have friends who are artists who are always like, grass is always greener. Right, of course. Um, but but I kind of, after six years of doing it, I kind of was like, you know, it was very corporate. And I probably have a, a project I'm going to write over it. So it was kind of a good research. Right. Because Goldstein Venice is crazy. I'm like, sure. That gym is just nuts. So I got tons now, of stories the Gold's Gym Hollywood is the porn star gym. That's the What's the Gold's Gym Venice? It's the bodybuilding gym. It's the body, it's the hardcore Arnold yeah. Schwarzenegger, um... Yeah, Muscle Beach. Arnold Lufrigno's there every morning, yeah. and I got sucked into the whole world. Like I, I did a bodybuilding competition. I remember the pictures. You, <laughs> you, you crushed it. And you, you were, you killed it. I killed it, and I had no life for a year, and I just ate chicken and vegetables and uh, worked out every day for three hours. You know, pre-show and what was the best and the worst part about that experience? The this the best part of it was that I. I took myself to a place I never knew I could take myself. Like in I terms of the way you felt, or in terms of the way you looked, or in, in terms, terms of, of what training, you were able in terms to of do. training and pain and endurance, like the amount of pain you have to go through. Yeah. To train for a show is, you know, like I would vomit on leg day many times, and wow, yeah, like that might be the name of this podcast. <laughs> I would vomit on leg day many vomit. times. Yeah, you know what? It's, wow. It's, yeah, like no, it was. Um, so it was that and just, uh, you know, it's weird, but it's like um, producing a play is much easier than getting ready for a bodybuilding show. Yeah. Like, and it's kind of the same thing because you know you, you there's a deadline, you got to get things done, but because it's not your physical body that you yeah. have to do those things to, it's a little easier to navigate. Yeah. Well, yeah. you're not vomiting. Yeah, you're only vomiting and, and um, yeah, like the last six weeks were the worst because it was just like it was like fish six times a day including breakfast yeah and like uh, was that the worst part like the sacrifice and the eating and the discipline you get used to that right like, now I don't know if I could do it because I'm I'm like a lazy writer again but did um, it go by like that once you're up there all this work and it was like over in a second it was over ten times faster than I ever like I <sighs> didn't and I didn't know that guys were gonna push like in the in the because there were so many people in my class, like right. you, you, you know, when you literally rehearse this, this ridiculous posing routine, like, and you pick a song, right? Yeah, and you pick a song. What song did you do it to? It was, um, uh, was it, it was like my coach picked it out, and I can't even. It was the Princess of Oh my God, I can't remember the name of the song. I'll get it for you in a minute. But it was like, um, it was like Beyonce, but like with somebody else, and it was. Um, Princess of why can't I freaking remember? Anyway, not important. Was it like an R and B song or like a like an R and B song? Yeah, but it okay. was like my coach had mixed, okay. had done like a special mix of it. Wow, that's cool. And um, and uh, it was yeah, it literally was over. Like it just went ten times faster. Yeah, and as some you know, as somebody who had done you know, done stand up, I've done acting. Right, it's much harder to be naked on a stage. Like it's so much more terrifying than than doing dialogue because dialogue, you know, it's like. You you know what to do, but when you're when there's no words, which is kind of an interesting tie into the play because I kind of I wanted to write a character that had no words, right? And um, yeah, there's a huge amount of power in in no words that that I think 
What did it feel like when you were up there? Um, and what color was your thong? Like it was red. Okay. And it was terrifying. It was, it was probably one of the most terrifying moments of my life. It really was. Were you surprised that it was terrifying? Yeah, because I had done standup. Like I'd been on stage millions of times, but what, you know, with standup, you have the ability to cover up your fear with your words. You can outsmart them or you can use your wit or you can, you have something to like, if they don't like your glutes, you don't have another glute. Well, yeah, whatever it is, but it's not even, it's like in standup, you're up there and you're talking and you know what you're doing when you're standing on stage naked and there's hundreds of people looking at you. Like, you're like, well, what, like, what do I do? (laughs) Like I pose, but like what, yeah, it's this kind of, I, I was stunned by how terrified and unpleasant it was. Like, in a way that stand-up wasn't. Because they always say stand-up is the most terrifying thing. But yeah. I found being naked on stage, not being able to use my, my words, much more terrifying. Did it change you afterwards? If I can do that, I can do anything. I, it changed me and I said, I can do that, I can do that, anything. But I was also like, I don't want to do that again. That was enough. <laughs> sure what, was it sexy? Were you, did you feel no, sexy during no, that time? No, no, no. Because like when I so, see actors that get in incredible shape, or when they when people are like just you know all the magic mic guys and how you know whatever. I mean that's a little bit different. Like, but when you have a friend that does a bodybuilding competition and they get in the best shape of their lives, you wonder if they're sexing it up, if it feels sexy, if they're hooking up. If everybody, it's a sexy time. Everybody told me they said you're not going to have sex the last couple of weeks before your show, and I was like, you know, I was like, you're out of your, you're out of your freaking mind. <laughs> have you and met I, me? I, I'm like, yeah. And then a couple weeks before the show, uh, like, people were hitting me up, and I was like, dude, like, I'm too, yeah, no, I just, <laughs> like, because you're, you're literally, you're, you have no carbs, you're cranky, you're you exhausted, yeah, you're just like, so it's the most unset, like, you, you look the most amazing you've ever looked in your life, and you just don't. You wow. don't want any of that. Like, right. and, and I didn't believe it. I was like, yeah, yeah, no, I'm different. Yeah. No, I was like, no. And everybody, every single guy, it didn't matter, straight, gay, whatever, they're like, oh, yeah, you're not going to, yeah. you're not going to want to. Yeah. And, um, What yeah. was the first thing you ate afterwards? When um, you, did you, was there a pig out moment? There was, I had pizza. I'm a pizza guy. So All it's right. just, yeah, pizza's my thing. Where, where's the best in LA? Um, oh God, um, I like Damiano's, but it closed. Both of them? There were a few, right? There's one by... It was across the street from Canners. Yeah. Like, gone. that was New York's... Like, yes. I, the be, You know what the best pizza I ever had was Gordon Ramsay's pizza at that place, Fat Cow. Or... I forget what it was called. Yeah. It was in the right. Grove. Yeah. And it was the best goddamn pizza I ever had in my life. And I mean, like, better than New York. Best fan pizza ever. And he closed that place. And I... Damn that it. That hurts. It does hurt. So when you decided to leave the gym, the corporate thing, was that a scary decision? It was terrifying. Yeah, it was very scary. It was very scary, but... but what pushed I, you over the edge? Um, I I had a really long day at work. I had like a 14-hour day at work, and just something stupid happened, and I just... I came home, and I was like... I was like, what am I doing? Yeah. Frigno didn't re yeah. his weight. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it was just basically... It was just like, you know, I really... Like, it was a... Gr- I, and I'm, I'm, I don't want to give the wrong impression. I love that job. It was so much fun. I love being at the Mecca. It's There's a really... That place is special. Like, there's a really special energy about... It's the craziest place in the world. It's super fun. I still work out there all the time. Um, but... It, and it it changed my life because I uh, I got really comfortable managing people. I learned a lot of skills. A lot right. of skills I'm using as a play producer. Right. Like, because I would have to hit a certain financial quota every month. Like, I'd have to raise 100000 in 
personal training sales. Like, right. and if I didn't do it, I wouldn't get my bonus. Right. And so after kind of doing that high stress thing for six years, like producing a play is not that hard. Like selling, you know, selling 90 seats to a, to a, a show that you're really passionate about is easy in comparison. Now, as a producer, you don't have to give us specifics. You yeah. probably don't even know yet. Is it something you, you can make money on, break even, lose money? Or is it like, is it, is it, can you, can you come out okay on it? Or is it, is producing a play in LA kind of like, you know what, you're, well, you're, you're, you're going to have, I don't know, you're not going to, it's not a place to make money. Well, it's interesting because, um, I mean, my only goal was I just don't want to, I didn't want to lose any money. Yeah. Which I don't think I will. There you go. Um, as far as making money, I mean, look, if I was trying to make money, this yeah. is the stupidest way in the world right. to do it. Um, and it's interesting because of the, you know, the whole um, guild thing that's about paying the actors. And yeah, all that. 99 like, cent theater. There's a big, yeah. uh, big yeah. uh, debate going on now. Yeah. And, um, you know, uh, I I honestly, because I'm self-producing, like, it, I would I would need to double probably if I were to do what the guild Wants. What equity wants yeah. to do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so it's it's, and I understand where they're where they're going with this, but it's it's really hard to produce theater in L.A. and to you know not lose money. Yeah, like, and and I'm uh, I'm learning that the hard way as I'm producing this. Yeah, yeah. So, but it was a scary thing when you decided to leave the gym. You had a moment where you decided, or a bad day. Yeah, you gave your notice. Uh, I, well, it wasn't like, it wasn't like I didn't go in and, and like, like I real I really have respect for the people yeah. that I worked for. I mean, I loved my trainers and, and as well as my bosses, I had huge respect for them. So I went in and they were totally cool. I gave them a month's notice and they'll probably all, all be at the play. Yay. Um, but, but, uh, yeah, it was, it was more, um, I had interest in a script that I had written like eight years ago and they would be like, what else you got? And I was like, eh. Right. You know, and I was just like, I just need to, you know, I played it safe for six years and I just didn't, I, I could easily see myself doing the job another six years. Right. But it was time to do some, you know, to take some creative risks. And you went traveling. You went to Europe. I traveled around. Where'd you go? I went to uh, Paris. I went to London and then I went to Ireland and I stayed in a castle in Ireland. That must have been really cool. It was amazing. What was your favorite memory of your trip? Um... Just, I love London nightlife. Like, I love the the clubs in Did London. Did you go to, like, Heaven and... What are uh, the big clubs? Like, or I like went the, to the Eagle the one, and... The hardcore ones. Va- yeah. Vahal. Or yeah, yeah, yeah. Vatal. Vatal. Yeah. Well, my friend... Uh, it's very interesting. My friend, Stuart, who he's a DJ um, in London. And so, I always stay with him when I go. And he's just always super fun. And, and just... So, I just always just have the most fun in London more than LA, which is a city that, you know, as Madonna says, it's for a city for people who sleep. So, um, I just always find like the nightlife to be more exciting. That's exciting. Yeah. Dirty and And kind of fun with the accents. And, and yeah, and they're just crazy drunks and super fun. And yeah. Now speaking of, um, crazy people, (laughs) I know just from going to gyms that there's certain gym kind of eccentrics. Okay. I'd like, there's a woman in my yoga class that comes in with, like, four bags of stuff. There's always a big Starbucks drink. Just a lot of stuff. And she's late. She lays it all out. <laughs> and the towel. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, there's yeah. ones that have their weird eccentricities. Yes. And what's your... What's the weirdest? Or what, what comes to mind when I talk about that? Um, well, there was a guy in the, at Gold's Venice who would come in every day with this huge suitcase. Right. And he was kind of homeless and nobody really knew 
what was in the suitcase. And then about like two or three months into it, I hear screaming, like I hear this woman screaming and I run out to the like lounge area and this gigantic python, like literally. <gasps> oh like, my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. It's like this like Jennifer Lopez, like, you know, anaconda style. Oh my God. Has, has broken out of the suitcase. Oh my God. <laughs> so this guy had his pet snake for months. Parading in, this, in and out of the gym. In the suitcase. And would he put and it in a locker? No. No, he would just keep the suitcase by the microwave would... oven. And somehow the, the snake finally crawled his way out of the suitcase. Oh, my God. And, um, anyway, so that gentleman, uh, I think he got his membership suspended yeah, after that. I would that. think. I mean, um, I would make a python penis joke, but I don't, yeah. I'm going to let yeah. it sit. No, it was a real, it was a How real did they capture snake. it? Was it going all over the gym? Like, uh, no, it just, it just kind of was in the lounge area. Okay. I think we got the guy to kind of... He came and wrangled it. Kind of wrangled up his own snake. Wow. That's the day you don't forget. Yeah, that was pretty funny. Yeah. Um, So that's probably one of my... How gay is that, Jim? (laughs) It's... It's not like uh, Hollywood gay. gay. It's not Hollywood it's, gay. It's like uh, I mean, there's tons of gays, but right. it's like it's Venice gay. It's not like Hollywood gay. Yeah. It's not like hello. You know, it's not like <laughs> <laughs> it's not like the spandex. I mean, I go to Hollywood and I'm like, you know, I need a moment to adjust because I'm like, oh, okay. And yeah, yeah that's just buying that stuff from you know whatever yeah. international mail or whatever. You know, it's more Venice is more like hey, bro, what's up? Like that yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah. But it's still going on. It's, it's just, still going on. Yeah. Like you're still, when you're waiting in line, there's still people taking selfies. It's just, you know. Yeah. All right. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. Now, you produced a documentary and directed it a while ago. Yes. Uh, tell us a little about that. It's called Nickname in the Normals. Okay. Um, it was about a gay punk rocker who's an ex-Mormon missionary. Why didn't, why wasn't he on my radar? He was raised <laughs> Mormon. Like, I kind of, rem- I researched him a little. He was a yeah. sexy dude, right? Yeah. He's, yeah. He was, he was, uh. And- it it all happened very uh, kind of uh, synchronous synchronistic. Um, it just kind of fell in my lap. The documentary, and I thought he was yeah. I remember the first time I saw him. I saw him on stage in San Francisco at the Gay and Lesbian Fest. Right, and um, and he came on stage, and I just was like, why wasn't this guy? Why wasn't there anything like this when I was growing up? Right, because he was kind of funny and irreverent. His his hit song was "I Fucked Your Boyfriend." Right. And it was kind of very funny and tongue-in-cheek and, you know, sexy and kind of very Henry Rollins. Right. But gay. And I said, oh, this guy's amazing. And then the weird – it was like I, – I mean, I know I sound like one of these secret douchebags, but like no. really um, like uh, all these kind of events kind of right after that happened, I, I filmed him in San Francisco Pride. And literally within a week, I was having coffee with him because I'd filmed him – uh, my friend saw him. My friends saw him in Palm Springs. When I was in Palm Springs, um, he said, oh, I saw this video my friend shot. And literally, it's just, I was shooting the documentary a week later. Could we watch that documentary if we wanted to? Is it available, yeah. like, on DVD and stuff? It's, it's on Netflix, actually. You can see it on Netflix. Oh, how cool. Yeah, yeah. I loved it. What did, did you just throw yourself into it and figure out what you were doing as you were going? It was, you know, that's, like, it was one of the best creative experiences I ever had. And um, I, yeah, it was very, okay, we have to go back. So... So it was a very cool story because I had, I knew I wanted to shoot a film and, right. um, I had done everything except by the camera. I right. had like bought the Mac and I bought the everything and I blah, 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 and I took the classes and it was like, I was, you know, I always like procrastinate. So like, that was the one thing I didn't right. do. 
And my friend procrastinate. John, I'm a procrastinator. Right. And yeah, that's my, the lead character. My play is a procrastinator. Yeah. Like that's what the clown calls him. Right. Yeah. yeah. And um, so uh, I went to uh, my roommate from the California Age Ride, the very first one. I did it. Right on. His name's John Mulliken. His father is a very famous artist named Lee Mulliken. Okay. So I went to see a documentary that he had done about his father. And in it, his father's talking about art. And you know, like, you hear somebody say something and it, like, it's literally like a sledgehammer on your head. Yeah. You're like, oh, crap. And so he was talking about being an artist. And he said, when you're an artist, it's not a, it's not a weekend thing. It's a full-time job. And I just sat there with my, my jaw dropped open. And I was like, I got to buy my fuck. And it was like, almost like a religious quest. I'm like, I got to buy my fucking camera. And I need to go to San Francisco. And I, and I didn't know, it wasn't rational. I'm like, I need to go to San Francisco other than... I had written a documentary, uh, I'd written a, uh, sorry, a feature that took place in San Francisco and I wanted to shoot kind of just to get a feel of it. And so that's what I did. I literally dr- bought my camera. I drove to San Francisco. He literally comes on stage. I shoot him and all these things accidentally happen. And next thing I'm shooting a documentary about wow. it. Wow. And it was all linked to me seeing my friend's. Um, documentary about being an artist. That's really cool. Yeah. Was the creative part of it, shooting him and, and putting it together and putting it out, was it was it a positive experience? It was, the, it was one of the best creative experiences I ever had because, as you know, being a writer, um, I had written probably about four or five screenplays by then. And, yeah. And, you know, still trying to get my foot in the door. And you know what it's like. It's like you write stuff and then nothing ever happens. You want to realize something. Yeah, you, you want wanna, something to... Yeah. You want to hold something and point to it. So that's what was so amazing about this was I shot it myself. I edited it myself. I learned Final Cut. Um, I distributed it myself. I sold the DVDs myself. And then it premiered in London at the London Gay and Lesbian Festival. Right on. So it was this kind of, yeah, it was this full realization. That's so cool. Yeah. Now, the the subject was raised Mormon. I was raised Mormon. What did you learn about Mormonism or what was his whole deal with Mormonism that you remember? I'm curious Um, about that. Well, he was, he's really, ang- like, it, it's kind of like, I mean, I always saw it as a kind of a comedy, even though it's a documentary. Yeah. Just because it's like, you feel, you know, you feel bad for him in it because he's, he's, um, he's, he's trying to be kind of a, a representative of a certain kind of gay man that, that doesn't exist or didn't exist as much. It's more kind of current, but he's, he's angry and he's kind of irreverent and he's kind of like, fuck you. Right. And, um. And that's why I think it got into London because I think London got it. They, right. They were. It, was it, it a was it a put on or was that who he was at the time? You know what? I think it was a little bit of a. It's a little bit of who he is because he's Mormon and he's pissed, but yeah. he's also really one of the sweetest guys. Right. In the Mormon world. guys are nice. He started out as a country, and yeah. the documentary deals with this. He started out as a country western guy. Yeah. And like he was sweet, kind of very soft, kind of yeah. songs. Like he can do ballads, and he's got a great voice. Yeah. Um, and then he kind of did this punk rock thing. Yeah. And, he's sexy. Um, did you have a crush on him? I did have a crush on him. I never fooled around with him. Um, and it was partly because uh, I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to, like, sleep with my subject. Right. But also, like, you know, it's kind of like he became my brother very quickly. Like, literally, yeah. a week into it, I was over it. Yeah. Like, I mean, I got that he was still, you know, and I was like, ew. All right. Know, I'm not going to go there. Um, and, and he's still a good friend. That's cool. But, uh... I want to watch it. Yeah. And you said, you were, we were talking earlier, because you saw something in my office, um, that you have to sometimes buy your own DVDs online if you want to copy it. <laughs> well, yeah, I got, um, Welcome to Hollywood. Um, what did somebody, what did somebody say? It's like, you know, like, um, you know, you show up with a big bottle of Vaseline and you hope you have some left over at the end to, <laughs> to, to somebody else. Like, Welcome to Hollywood. Can I tell you yeah. so, a story about this? <laughs> 
when the Fashion Police writers went on strike, the Writers Guild did this thing where they were, like, trying to help us a little, and they, they gave us all sort of mentors in the Guild that yeah. wanted to talk to us or give us advice or whatever. Mine was a guy named Lee Aronson, and okay. he made a bunch of money on Two and a Half Men, I think. Okay. And then he sort of dropped, he was like, I'm out of there. I'm out of here. But okay. he met for coffee and he was nice. And so when I got in the Writer's Access Project, this other thing, I reached out to him to say, hey, you know, I got into this thing. If you know anyone, whatever, I, I, I um, uh, uh, you know, I, I got in because I'm gay and it's this diversity yeah. program or whatever. And if you know any agents, whatever, my, my boilerplate, yeah. like, outreach thing. And he wrote me back, and he was like, um, hey, I'm traveling, but that's great, and uh, it's a good thing you tick the gay box, because you're going to try to be a writer in Hollywood, you got to get used to getting fucked in the ass. <laughs> and then he just signed off. I'm out. Like, he's probably on a yacht somewhere. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's out. Yeah, like, yeah, That was his big, like, way to go, fucked in the ass. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and he's a straight guy, I'm assuming. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. a gazillionaire. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Anyway. Yeah. yeah. And, you know... It, it, I I yeah. I forgot what got us on the subject. Oh, the, the Vaseline and getting screwed over, and also and, yeah, yeah. buying your own DVDs or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Well, what happened was is I had I had made you know you can only self make DVDs if you buy like two thousand. So I think I had. What happened was is nickname had a fan base. Yeah, and so I probably sold I probably sold about you know five hundred six hundred DVDs on my own, right. and that more than made up for the cost of you know I. Uh, I had shot some of the documentary in London, right. even though Nick didn't get into the country. Like, it was kind of perfect. Like, I flew into London for a gig of his, and he, they stopped him at the border, and he kind of started up with them, and they wouldn't let him in. What was his... Oh, shit. Yeah, no, that's what was great about he the... He had a Naomi Campbell moment in the airport. He, he, no, all he was was Naomi Campbell's moments. Like, literally, like, what was so great about the documentary was, like, every gig, he would he would get thrown off stage at some point or not show up at the gig or... Like, it was like, I couldn't have written it better. Like, he was, like, an awesome subject that way. Was he... It was very punk rock. It was, yeah. And the great thing about shooting a punk rock documentary when it's your first feature is, it's like if the camera's shaky, you can like write it off. Yeah, that's the whole aesthetic. Yeah, so even though like people on Netflix write like, God, this director's such a spaz, like I could get away with it because I would say it was cinema verite. Right. And and I had this really, you know, the the band had really great music, so I got all this amazing music in it. Yeah. Um, But, uh, let's go back, sorry, I'm I'm getting... uh, That's all right. Sometimes happens in the booth of truth. But, uh, so I had I had leftover copies of DVDs. Right. I got a distributor. They took them off my hands. I got this contract where they were going to pay me a certain amount of money after they sold it. Oh, shit. And so they got it on Netflix. They got it on TLA. They got it all over the place. And then, of course, like, you know, I don't even know where these people yeah. are. You know, and it was like... I, and it's weird because I know the guy who screwed me over, he's still on Facebook, and I message him, and he never responds. Right. And I kind of... I'm always pleasant, and like... But there's, like, a part of me that wants to, like, go, you know... Yeah, like, you screwed me over, man. Glenn close on him, but you know, it's like, you know, at the end of the day, like, it, it was a great experience. Like, yeah, yeah, I got screwed over, but you know, it's like, I, I didn't lose any money, yeah. so. And you don't. Know, yeah. There's certain resentments. Like, I can't hold on to this. It's yeah. not doing anything. Gotta move on. Good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gotta move on. Gotta move exactly. on. Exactly. People, <laughs> people, people don't even have DVD players anymore. I'm gonna let yeah. it go. Yeah, let it go. Let, let it go. go. But I'm gonna watch that shit on Netflix. I'm okay, excited. Please, please. I'm or, looking forward to it. It's called Nickname and the Normals. All right. You know, me and Jim were talking about. There's another Jim Fall who's directing show, and also I mean, a former podcast guest. Since we've all done films, like yeah. you have your film, David has his film, right. Jim has his many films. I have. 
my films. David like, Kittredge is who the David is. He, David Kittredge, who did he's pornography. In our group. Yeah, he did pornography. And then Glenn Gaylord, who's done Leave It on the I Floor, do, I yeah. Do, and The Short You're In, yes. which is awesome. If We Took a Holiday, which is playing in Toronto, if you're listening in Toronto... May 24th at Inside Out Film Festival. And I can't believe we didn't mention this in the beginning. You developed that in our writer's group. We did. And I had no... I mean, I always liked the script, but I had no idea about Nadia. How good Nadia is? Oh, my God. Yeah, she's amazing. It's... it's, it's I love that movie. Thank you. You're in it. You play I the know, bodyguard. I'm the bodyguard. You're awesome. But I always... I love that movie. I always... Like, I always forget that I'm in it. Like, I just uh, love watching it. That's cool. Um... So yeah, we were thinking like we should have a movie night, like we where should. we watch each other's movies. I would love that because John Knowles, John Knowles has one too. John, he's in our group, our token straight guy. There we go. Yeah, I keep forgetting he's straight, but he's clearly very straight. Well, he's very straight, but his wife is like a gay man, That's so true. it's kind of they kind of you kind of count them together. Yeah, so it's almost like having yeah, that makes sense a gender neutral persona, gay, like but they're like gay people, but they're yeah. straight. Right, it's super cool. When did you first come to LA? I came to L.A. like 20 years ago. I, I I came right before the riots. Right on. <laughs> so you get here and then the riots happen. What happened? Yeah. Do you freak out? I didn't. Well, I was still kind of, I had come from New York. So right. I was still in that, like, when you're from New York and you come to L.A., at least during that, yeah, it's always still like this. It's like you're stunned that you can get parking in your building and it's not $10 million. And right. you're stunned that you can get square footage that's bigger than, you know, a shot glass. Yeah. So... So you'll I take was, a few riots. You'll take yeah. a little riots. Yeah, yeah. So, no, I was still in, like... If it's this sunny, is, yeah. they can burn this shit down. I don't care. <laughs> but, yeah, the riots was when I was like, oh, maybe there, there are... You know, maybe this isn't complete paradise. Like maybe right. there's Maybe there's some social issues here that right. are not being dealt with properly. Right. When you came out here, what was it to do? Um, you did comedy? I had done stand-up and... So it was stand-up and acting, believe it or not. Like, was what I first started doing. And um, and then kind of the writing evolved. What was that like trying to do stand up and acting in LA at that time? Um, I was more of a stand up than a I, you know I had t- traveled like I I had done the road right. And um, when I came out here, I started working at, in New York. I was like the backup comic at Catch a Rising Star. So I would literally almost get on stage all the time, and then Ray Romano would like push me aside. Like so, if a big star, <laughs> a big star came in, you had to. Well, the backup comic, because of how New York works, like, it's, let's say, and during that time, it was, like, Jeffrey Ross, um, Louis C.K., John Stewart, uh, Ray Romano. What, what it is is they would, would, they would work the comedy cellar on one end of New York, and then they would have to get to catchers at the other end. Right. So sometimes if traffic was bad or whatever, they'd be late for their set. So the backup comic would go up and, and, and do bam. stuff right. until... Until Ray Romano showed Yeah. Up. So I would always just, like, be on stage for two minutes and get pulled off, or, or I would get, get the light, or what, yeah. Or, or no, or, like, I'd literally just be walking, and Ray Romano would just, like, be, like run through. and like. I think he's oddly sexy, Ray Romano. Really? I think he's sexy. Like, in Men of a Certain Age, I find him sexy. <laughs> you know, I didn't... I mean, I had I had my crushes. I'm, I know, yeah. I had my crushes. What were your crushes? Um, well, he wasn't a comic, but I, I was the dishwasher at Second City before I did stand-up in okay. Chicago. And when I first... I had a girlfriend at the time while I was washing dishes. And um, Jeremy Piven came on stage. He's and hot. I, yeah, and this was like a young Jeremy Piven when yeah. he was in the touring company. And I had like a... I had like a self... I had like a Rosie O'Donnell self-realization moment like that you're gay yeah i was like i was like i am totally gay for this guy like i was like how old were you i was in my i was like 20 something wow and yeah i was like yeah i was like i had a total crush on jeremy piven he's holding he looks good too he's still holding it together yeah yeah. he might be nutty i don't know 
But I, I met him at Sundance, and he was very, very nice. He was very cool. All right, good. So you were in the Groundlings, too, for a while, right? I wasn't in the Groundlings. I just took classes at the oh, Groundlings. Right okay. But I had, like, amazing... Like, Jennifer Coolidge was in my class. Right. And... Kathy Griffin was one of my teachers. And did you bang her? Because she was. I didn't. I didn't know I was gay by then. So yeah, yeah, she. So I'm surprised she didn't make me one of her gays. But yeah. Um, but yeah, she. You would, really had to. <laughs> there's, a, there's a written test and there's an oral. I would. I wasn't. I've never been a good gay. So yeah. I like. I think I threw her off because I like. Yeah, because at first she was kind of like coming on to me, and then I think she sensed I was. I don't know. It just didn't yeah. work out. But um, but then it's funny because Lisa Kudrow was the sub when Kathy would work. Right. And it was before Friends, and I, you know, she was very much Phoebe, in the, but I didn't get her sense of humor. Right. So she would be like, you know, you'd do something, and she'd be like, okay, that was not good. And, you know, in, like, her right. delivery, and I didn't get it at the time. And then, like, now I, like, I look back, I'm like, oh, she was fucking hysterical. I just wasn't getting... Like her, did you delivery. feel like you weren't doing well because she didn't? Like I just what didn't. You're doing? I just was taking her to. I, yeah. I, I wasn't getting the the comedy yet. Like yeah. it was. It was like over my head. I was like, which of the comedians that you used to be around during the Catch a Rising Star days would you most like to run into? Sarah Silverman. Yeah. Yeah, because she she um, my roommate stole a joke from me once, yeah. and she like she she had my back. She came to me and she told me. And yeah. I thought it was Sarah really Silverman cool. came and said, "Hey, so and so stole your joke." Yeah, your Kevin took your joke. Wow, <laughs> what was the joke? It was something about I don't even remember what the joke it was. Something about alcoholics that, um, yeah, 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 alcoholics are always whining about the you know what it's like to be the child of an alcoholic. They don't talk about the good things like yeah. how there's always liquor in the house, right? You know? And um, and so Sarah told me, and I confronted my roommate, and I was like, "Oh, oh, yeah, man, I was just testing that out for you." <laughs> I think it takes huge balls to steal a joke from somebody. I think that would take them. What kind of? A, it's so gross to do that, but it's also like you're gonna get caught. Like, yeah, I think well, especially it's like, yeah, it's like it's, it wasn't even like he did it on the road. Like, it's one thing. Yeah, like there were comics that I won't name that were notorious for stealing stuff in New York that they would do on the road. That they would sit and watch other people's acts, and then when they were on the road, and you know, this was yeah. pre-internet and right. pre. You know, Twitter and everything else. Yeah, so you yeah. could get away with it. But yeah, to do it in the same city was kind of messed up. Yeah. And, um, and it, you know, it's weird, but like um, the, a realization I had was I had come from Chicago. I started in Chicago. I was doing a lot of stand-up in there. And then I came to New York. And, and the realization that like maybe I'm not that good at it was um, I went to the Comedy Cellar and Jon Stewart was performing. And... He did 15 minutes, and my my jaw was just dropped open because he was so fucking brilliant. And I, I literally, I just said to myself, "Why is it if this guy isn't famous, how the fuck am I ever gonna, you know?" Like I was stunned. It still took him a good three or four years till something happened, and I was just so stunned that somebody that brilliant, like, wasn't already famous. I've started having those moments where I will. When you see somebody really good and they're yeah. new, it's almost disheartening because you're like, oh, shit. Yeah. They can't ignore or deny that. They're going to have to hang in. Like, I remember my, I had a friend, my friend um, Dennis, his daughter is a singer. And I remember as a teen, she was like a teenager. Yeah. And he's like, come in here, Kate, sing. I was like, we're going to go see her sing. And then she sang and you're like, oh, shit. Yeah. She really has a gift. What are you going to do about it? Yeah. There's that thing of like talent that's like so undeniable that... That they have to go for it. 
like, yeah, well, like, well, and it's, it's an interesting inverse, which was a huge lesson to me, which was that I, I think I gave up on myself a little too much. And I'm, I'm happy with the, the course I took. Because if I didn't do all that stand-up, I don't think I'd be as good as writing comedy dialogue. Cause right. Because like, now, I mean, the You're play... You're so funny with your thanks, dialogue. Thanks. And it's all because I had to perform it for years. So yeah. I don't I don't regret any of the stand-up. But, but the, the inverse of that was, you know, I, I would watch Louis C.K. a lot, too. And I wasn't that impressed with Louis back then. Like, he was... Like, he didn't blow me away. Right. He, he was, didn't have the Stuart moment with Yeah, him. like, like it wasn't like... I'd watch Stuart and I'd be like, oh, fuck, I will never be that good. And I'd watch yeah. Louis and Louis was... It was great, you know, fine, but I was like, nah. And, um, and, and, uh, and then I, I was at Sundance when he was at Sundance and he, he had done his first movie, which, which I think, I forget what it's called, but it was midnight at, at Sundance. It was a really weird movie and my friend Chuck Sklar was in it. And, um, it's about, it's, it, you can see early parts of Louis' genius, but it's like, it was one of his first films. Right. And, um, and now I look at, I look at Louis and I'm, now my jaws drop. Like he's just so fucking brilliant, right? Like more brilliant than almost anything I've seen. And I realized that it took that process of twenty years. He stuck it out. He stuck it out. He he was already good, but it was you know twenty years of really just you know he put in his ten thousand hours, and, yeah, and then some. So there's a part of you that thinks, oh, did I did I give something up too soon? Or I just you know what the problem was is I really don't. I didn't enjoy the day-to-day process of being a stand-up. It's too... I think you have to love it. You have to love it, and I didn't. What I don't love about it is that it it um, mutes every other part of your life. Like, in other words, uh, at least for me, all I cared about was those two or three hours I was on stage. Right. And so real life is extremely boring to you. Right. Like, it... it so it, it kind of... It kind of mutes out everything and it, or, else. Or it's also fodder. Like, real life is... How can I mean... Like, it's sort yeah. of like... You're on all yeah. the time in a way. Yeah, and then it's very like it's it's kind of like a form of manic depression because if you have a great show, you feel good, and if you have a bad show, you feel like shit, and your mood is completely dictated. It, you know, I'm sure there are people that that as they progress in their careers, they don't have that and they get over that. But I just didn't like that. wasn't at least for that part of my life. Like that wasn't for me. Yeah. Like I'm, my, I enjoy. Like, I like being a playwright. I, I, like, that's why it's like, even though I could act in the, the play if I wanted to, I don't want, like, I don't want to be the performer. I like, I like writing you my like stuff. You like where you're at. I like writing my stuff and seeing other people do it. Yeah. I've never longed to do stand-up, even though I like working in comedy and yeah. writing comedy. and But I've never had that itch. And I, I think it, it may have hurt me a bit because I think in the world of comedy, like television comedy, it's very social and it's hanging out at UCB and it's the guy that you met when you were at the Groundlings or whatever. It's a very much, that's the laboratory for all of that stuff. And that isn't the world that I chose to be in. Yeah. And I, I never longed to do stand-up, which I guess is a relief because I've longed to do a million other things. So it's like... It's interesting. Poetry, opera, stand-up. I don't need to do those things. Yeah. That's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's weird. I always think about like doing it again, but... I, I, I'll know when it's right. I'll know when it's right. I'll know when it's right. Now, you had another movie, The Unknown Cyclist. Yeah. Now, you wrote that? It was very weird. I wrote it at UCLA Extension. Right on. And, um... It was about a charity bike ride. It was about the... It was about the AIDS ride. It was about a fake AIDS ride. Right. And then we got this amazing cast. We got, um... Leah Thompson, Danny Nucci, Vincent Spano... In bike shorts. In bike shorts. Thank you. Uh, Steven Spinella. Um... Lainey Kazan... In bike shorts. No, no bike shorts for Laney. <laughs> that might be the and, title of this podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. But um, my favorite scene 
uh, with Lainey is on YouTube where um, Steven Spinell comes out to her. And it's like, it's a coming out scene where the word gay is never said. Yeah. And basically Lainey Kazan's like, I know. And then Steven, uh, she's like, I don't want to know. And then Steven Spinell's like, well, how do you know you don't want to know if that means you know? And she's like, yeah, but I don't want to know. And it's like this basic back and forth where the word gay is never said. That's and, cool. Yeah. Now, did you, how did, what, how did that happen? Like, you wrote it and somebody got it? I and- wrote it and there was this producer that was in the class and she liked the idea. And she called me one day and she said, uh, I met this guy who's got like uh, $2 million, $3 million. He wants to produce a film. And I pitched him your script and he liked it. And, and it was, was the like, 90s. It was the 90s. Shit like that could happen like, in yeah, the 90s. Yeah, shit like, yeah, like, I don't, I, like, yeah, I don't expect shit like that to happen anymore. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, it literally, um, it just happened. It happened. And Did it, you, were there other writers involved or was it just you? Well, that's what was kind of funny was um, the producers decided that they were co-writers yeah. and kind of rewrote the whole story. And I remember when I uh, read it, uh, I, I was on a train and I read it and I, I felt physically ill from the I've had that I've had that feeling yeah, before. I was physically oh my ill. God. Because I had written it as like a comedy and they had turned it into like an AIDS drama. Right. And, um, you know, this was, <laughs> you know, this was like pre-prep. So this was like when it was like, you know, yeah. it was like Lifetime movie of the disease of the week kind of stuff. Right. And, um, and I had just written it as kind of like I wanted it to be a fun journey, which is what the bike ride was for me. And um, so we had kind of creative differences about the kind of story. And, and I kind of was like, I just wanted my name off of it. And then what's weird is, is Leah Thompson came on board and the producers, because they had put in their name on as the, the top writers. They had, written, they had put their names as the screenwriters and I had just gotten the story. And I had finally met Leah, and Leah... That chaps my ass. Well, my agent was their agent. Okay. So, and it was not Guild. Yeah. And so, you know... Oh, what's an agent, by the way? Uh, what I is an agent? I don't <laughs> know what that is. You know what? I, th- let me tell you, this agent was not very yeah. good either. Um, so, yeah, she had a conflict of interest because my agent was representing the producers as well as me. So, Leah Thompson. Leah, Leah comes to me finally after we've been... She'd been talking to the producers. Like, I don't understand my character. My character's stupid. Yeah. And I had originally written Leah's character with Janine Garofalo in mind. So she was this foul-mouthed, chain-smoking, right. kind of tough chick. And they had turned her into this kind of weepy, like, whatever. And Leah's like... And I, and I said, well, actually, your character used to be very different. And I gave her this scene where her character had a panic attack. She just read it and started laughing. And she's like, this is so much funnier than what they gave me. Like, why aren't we doing this? And so then she started this campaign where she basically told all the actors about me and she told the director she wanted me rewriting everything. So I literally was rewriting the film while we were, like, literally it's like, you can almost, like, if you watch the film, you can, like, see me almost in the back, like, rewriting scenes as well. Right, on your laptop. And I I didn't have an, like, I was literally rewriting it as we were shooting. It was a nightmare. And I mean... But was it vindicating to know that you were... Oh, it was, was, well, I learned a valuable lesson, which was... You know, that's why I've kind of, that's why I did my own documentary. That's why I, I'm self-producing was that like, you know, I'm a, I like to collaborate like Jim, for example, as a director, I have huge respect for Jim. So I concede, I'll fight with Jim sometimes, but Jim always wants what's best for the project. And it's, and so, um, and like I said, we're, we're really good friends and we'll squabble sometimes, but he usually ends up being right anyway. Right. Um, but with, with this project, the director was a little, little, um, 
you know, like we'd be talking and he'd be like, you know, homosexuality is the color blue. So Doug's character needs to be in blue because that's the color of homosexuality. Well, everyone knows that. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what your problem was with that. And this was like when I was kind of early in Hollywood and I just remember thinking, well, he must know more because he's the director. And then, you know, of course, a part of me is like, this guy's fucking crazy. And, um... So, when you're new, you don't, <laughs> you don't know. I've had that same thing. Yeah, and that voice would, like, you know, here's the thing. It's like if somebody's going to make your project better or they're smart, you don't have the voice in the back of your head that's like, they're out of their fucking mind. Like, and I was just the whole time when I'd be talking to everybody that was collaborating that wasn't the actors, I'd be like, they're all out of their fucking minds. Right. And, you know, I don't, and look, they got the film made. They, they, they did a good job with the line producing and they got these great act. Like, I don't want to sound like a total dick, but creatively, it was something. Yeah. Yeah. They had a very different agenda than I had. You know, I wanted to make a fun movie. They wanted to, you know, they wanted, they they wanted tears. They wanted tears. It was on tape. Yeah. And, and so it was kind of a, it was kind of a struggle. So, uh, where I'm at with the movies, it doesn't suck as bad as the script that I read. Right. It's not totally what I envisioned, but there's, there's like, three or four scenes in the movie that I'm like, including the coming out scene, which was one of the only, only scenes from the original draft that didn't change. Yeah. Was there a part of you though, when it was getting made that was like, holy shit, I'm off to the races. Yeah. My career is, I'm on my way. Oh yeah. Yeah. I thought that. And then nothing. And then, um, <laughs> and then I, that quote, uh, that quote yeah. comes up on a lot of podcasts, yeah. by the way. Yeah. Yeah. And then, um, well, it's weird. It's like, I remember I called John Stewart when I was working Catch Rising Star Princeton. There was like a Princeton club. Yeah. And like, this is when I still had his number and yeah. it was a house number. Right. And I was like, he had just done Young Comedians and I was like calling him to like find out like, like, are you fit? He was like, he was saying how hard it still was. Yeah. And, um, so yeah. So like, that's what, I, it's so weird because I, I talked to my friends who I was in classes with and we often say like if our future selves could go back to our young selves and be like you'll have a film made or you'll be on staff on a tv show like that younger self would be like oh my god right. i made it and like what you don't realize is like that's just one gig yeah it doesn't pay your bit like like people have especially from our generation yeah you think you get one or two movies made and oh well i have the house in malibu now right like it's it doesn't you know those people that are creative that get their work made that are top top they're it's a small percentage of people right like they're extremely lucky and for and and look you've had you've made films you've had films made you've uh, almost everybody in our writers group we're all kind of in the same place we're all kind of people that have made films but we're not you know we're not making a shit ton of money we're doing it because we actually love it right and we you know like i said if we were trying to do it for money it's the stupidest way in the world to make money. It seems to be. Yeah, it seems it to seems be. Seems to be. You yeah. pick some questions from the uh, observation deck. Let's let's crank through some of these. Okay, sure. Um, what's the craziest thing you've done in pursuit of a crush? Oh, that's a good one. Uh, okay, yeah, this is a good one. Um, <laughs> so, uh, oh my god, I can't believe. I'm, wait, I can't believe I'm telling you a story. Okay, I'll I'll change around so it's not. So there was this, like, guy that I had a crush on who had a boyfriend. Okay. And so he kind of had an affair. And um, so he invited me away to his place because the boyfriend was gone, but he had a roommate. So he's like, look, you have to um, come up with a, like, don't say your real name 
to my roommate because he may find out, you know, he'll then tell my boyfriend and my boyfriend will figure it out it's you. So, um, I had, a, did you know the boyfriend? Yes. Okay. So I had to come up with a fake identity. Okay. So, um, what, what was your fake identity? So I gave my name, my middle name, Jeff. Okay. And, and I said I was from New York. And so I get stuck alone with the roommate and I wasn't expecting to like, be drove- you needed a backstory. <laughs> I didn't have a backstory. So he's like, he starts talking to me. He's like, so where do you live? And I'm like, uh, uh, the village. And he's like, uh, where in the village? And I'm like, you know, by that. By that park, and he's like Washington Square Park. I'm like, yeah, by that. <laughs> oh fuck! And he's like, he's a diehard New Yorker. Who knows yeah, he's like a diehard New Yorker. Who's like, yeah, and it just it just got worse. Do you and think then, he figured it out? He, yeah, I think yeah, but he was he was tormenting me at that point. Like oh. he, he was purposely like fucking with me. Did it but, all blow up into a no? It didn't. Drama? It didn't. It was just horribly off. But it's just so typical of why I can't. <laughs> do these things and then like um like like I'm a terrible liar like I'll just give you one more example of that like like I like those baby wipes but I don't flush them anymore because they're bad for our water systems but oh shit so they were on sale at Ralph's so I bought like five baby wipes right and the woman at I didn't was, know that yeah oh don't flush them yeah you can't flush them really they screw up the water filtration Systems. Uh, no, I didn't know the this. septic tanks. Yeah, yeah. Shit. Oh, fuck. I'm yeah, sorry. Just throw them in the garbage. I'm sorry, yeah. Earth. No, I just learned this. I, I, okay, yeah, but it's very important. But I love those vape wipes. So I bought yeah. like they were on yeah. sale. I bought like six of them online at the supermarket. And so the woman is like, "Oh, how old is your baby?" And like, I have a choice at this moment. Like, I could just say, "Hey." You know, but of course I lie and I'm like, oh, the, you know, the baby's great, you know, know, but how old is your baby? And, and I, I literally, I folded at that point. I'm like, look, I wipe my ass with these things. Like I don't, there's no baby. You learned that you didn't, you didn't go too far down the road. So you're growing as a, as a liar. You're growing. I need a baby backstory when I buy, when um, you buy uh, butt wipes, butt wipes. All right. That's a good story about the crush. All right. What else you got? Um... Okay, voicemail, BS thing a suit has ever said to you. What's the... Oh, oh, this is a good one. Okay, BS thing a suit has... What's the most bullshitty thing a suit has ever said to you? This is a manager. I've had a lot of... I've had more managers than personal relationships. Back up. What's a manager? uh, A manager's like an agent. (laughs) Back up. What's a manager? A manager. I'm going to hammer that home to anyone who ever comes on this podcast. I don't know. They've never done anything for me, but this was... um, this is a woman who, you know, she pursued me like she called me out of the blue. That's cool. And so, yeah, so immediately I was like, I, you know, yeah. like, ooh. And, um, but she had like a side business. She had like a, <laughs> I don't remember what the side, it was like a balloon business or something. Sure. I don't remember what it was like. But it was like sad because she was doing these like, you know, it, like she wasn't making a living as a right. manager clearly. And um, so I was writing something and she called me up and. She's like, you know, uh, and, and I changed the character. She's like, this, char- this character's like 30. This, this character's over the hill. Are you, you can't, this character can't be 30. And then, and then she gave me another note, which is something of like, you know, you know, give her, give her something with depth. Give her like that scene in uh, broadcast news where Holly Hunter is crying for that moment. Like give her that scene, but not that, but do that, do that scene, but not that scene, but something like that, but not like that. Like, like that was when I realized Maybe it wasn't a good fit. Yeah, it wasn't a good fit. Yeah. It wasn't it wasn't the best note. That's good. <laughs> like that, but not like that. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I've, I've experienced that kind of stuff before. Those weird, random... People want, going for something that they couldn't come close to if it was their own thing. But that's, they're doing their thing. Whatevs. All right. What yeah. else you got? 
What else do I got? Let's see. You mean here or just yeah. in general? Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, all right, let's do this one. Okay. What's, what's your biggest frustration? What's your biggest frustration? Well, you had already kind of referenced it about it's a different time, like, in terms of filmmakers. I mean, and, um, you know, what's really been killed now with the superhero movies and also the good part of that, which is that anybody can shoot anything now because of the cameras and right. the equipment, is that, like, mid-level movies – like $10 million, $20 million movies have been kind of wiped out. Right. And, um, you know, I think that, that people that don't want to write superhero movies or people that don't want to do shitty $10,000 movies, um, it causes a problem. Like pretty much the only answer is to do a lot of shitty $10,000 movies until you have a hit. And then maybe you can get the chance to make something bigger. But I mean, yeah, the biggest frustration for me is just not being able to do what I do. Right. And, and, and look, I can always write stuff. Right. I want the ability to see my work realized. Like, I'm not one of these writers that can just write and not collaborate and not... I mean, the whole joy of it for me is is bringing things to... Like, getting things made, doing yeah. things. No, like, for sure. Yeah. So that's probably... That's that's the biggest... And I, I see you shaking your head. In well, I just think, how many superheroes... I mean, you know, it's like Berlanti's zombies, got a new and, superhero and, show. And, 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 zombies, like, and zombies now, too. Like, this is like, this. When my mouth dropped open, like, when it became parody for me, it was like, and I'm sure it's a great film, but like, I guess Schwarzenegger's doing like a zombie art film where he's a, it's a, but it's a father's tale of, and I'm like, I, you know who should be bitter is George Romero. Like, if I was George Romero, I'd be like, what the fuck? Yeah, I invented like, this shit. Yeah, like, hey, hey. What? What? Yeah. Hello? They showed Night of the Living <laughs> Dead in my high school. My yeah. English teacher showed us Night of the Living Dead. That's awesome. That was really awesome, but I don't remember why. Like, I don't remember how he spun that. I don't know. I mean, it was... It and then was I a... came to California with my choir tour, and we saw the girl that played Barbara in a dinner theater production of The Sound of Music. Sometimes the I dots think, connect wait, like where's that. Where's the dinner theater? Where is that? This was in, like, the 80s. I miss dinner like, theater. It was I like miss, Anaheim. I miss dinner theater. It was very exciting. Yeah. Like, they don't have it anywhere anymore. Like, the Burt Reynolds... Like, I've been yeah. to the Burt Reynolds Dinner Theater. And, in Jupiter, Florida? Uh, yeah, and then there's one in San Antonio, too. Oh, that's cool. Like, I'd go, there was... When I would go visit my sister in San Antonio, there was, like, a... And so it was, like, C-level actors. It was amazing. That can be fun, though. I was just visiting my friends oh. in Cambria, and the local... Um, they were doing Death Trap, and I just missed it. Oh, I would have gone. Yeah, no, there's... There, but Dinner Theater was great. Yeah. No. <laughs> Do you have any more of those questions you want to answer? Uh, sure. Okay. Um, uh, what's your... What, what, I, I like this one. Do you have okay. one for that? Oh, yeah, I do. I do, I do. What's okay. a voicemail that was left on your machine that you listened to more than once? A friend of mine knew... I don't know if you know who Phil Hendry is. No, but I know the name. Okay, DJ Phil, Radio. Radio guy. Yeah. Phil Hendry's genius. Okay. He, um, he, he does fake... He does the voice of the guest as well as himself. Okay, yeah, so, he does that. Yeah, right. so it's like it's like if you, Dennis Hen- Hensley, were doing your podcast, and then you'd be doing a funny voice as me or you okay. know, like that. So he had this one character named Margaret Gray, and Margaret Gray is kind of, you know, like like one time, like like and and people who don't know that he's doing the fake voice call outraged because like one time Margaret Gray did one where 
she was talking about how fat Callista Flockhart was, <laughs> and, that, and that what's wrong with a little bulimia if it makes a man love you? Right. And so women would call in outraged, like you know, how dare you say that Callista Flockhart is fat? And right. you know, and then Phil Hendry would be like, well, dear, how much do you weigh, dear? You really need to, you know, go into the bathroom and stick your fingers down your throat because you you sound terribly overweight. Right. And um, and oh, so shit, that would never fly now, <laughs> right? It's so horribly politically incorrect. Right. Genius. Genius radio. Like, okay. Like genius. And um, so a friend of mine knew I was a huge fan and he got Phil Hendry to call my old flip phone uh, as Margaret Gray. Oh my God. And he left like a one minute message and I like literally, I held on to that. Like I almost didn't get a new phone because I, I didn't want to lose, didn't wanna lose that message. And it was the freaking funniest thing ever. That's and, so cool. Yeah. Did you ever get to thank him for it or no? I never got to personally meet him. That's cool though. Yeah. Awesome. Super cool. Do you have any other other ones that you want to talk about? Um, What's the worst thing that went wrong for you on stage? Oh my God. I once, as a stand-up, I, when I was in LA, I got a gig where I played a high school and I had to do 10 minutes of stand-up and it was just... The kids literally almost rioted in the auditorium. They just were not was, having it. They were just, they were like, didn't think I was funny at all. <laughs> yeah. It was just, and it was so horrible. Like, it was just horrible. Like, there's nothing worse than having a really, really bad set. Um, that feeling is just, oof. Especially Bombing. when it's, yeah, it's terrible. I know, just from working with Joan Rivers, like, she would come in some weeks and go, I just played this gig and I bombed so bad. Like, like even Joan Rivers would talk about bombing. And it's, you know what? And you've got to be a strong individual to put up with that. And that's also very, you, um, it's a very boys clubby, the comedy world. Yeah. And you have that kind of bro, cool, I can hang vibe, but you're also gay. Was there ever any weird, was there any weird vibes where people would say homophobic things around you and not know that you were gay or? I have a, I have a really, really funny story and I'm actually a stand. Oh, I'm sorry. Time's up. (laughs) No, that's, we're not. We're good. It's it's Glenn Gaylord. Glenn Gaylord's calling. Our writing group is all reunited. calling. Okay. Um, should I answer and put it on speaker and tell him? Do you want to do that? Do you want to do that? Glenn Gaylord's on. Glenn Gaylord. Hey, Hey, Glenn. Hey, Howie's doing the podcast. I'm going to put you on speaker. You can make a cameo and then we're going (laughs) to hang up. Glenn Gaylord, everybody. Glenn Gaylord, past podcast guest. Um, Howie's going to tell a story now. Do you want to hear it? <laughs> well, it's impossible not to hear something when Howie's talking. Thank okay, you. there you go. Oh, there you go. Okay, so <laughs> Howie's going to tell a story, and then we're going to hang up, and you can chime in on the story. Okay, so my one of my buddies from Chicago, his name is Jim Dory. He's a stand-up comic. And, okay. Um, he has a podcast, too, actually. I know. So, so, um, so when I moved to L.A., Jimmy... Sorry, when Jimmy moved to LA, he hit me up and we had lunch at Hugo's. Okay. And I had never, Jimmy was like the list of like straight guys that I never came out to. Right. So, cause I didn't come out till I was 27. And okay. so, um, so this is like, I'm already in my thirties. Right. And I like sit him down for lunch and I'm like, listen, Jimmy, I gotta tell you something. I'm gay. And he just starts laughing hysterically. Right. Like it's the funniest fucking thing. And he's like, he's like, oh, okay, you're fucking with me. What's next? And like literally... It was just me repeating, no, I'm not fucking with you, I'm gay. And because I was a comedian, he just thought I was fucking with him. And so for 40 minutes, I kept saying I'm gay, and he just kept laughing his ass off. You literally had to get up and go suck somebody's cock. Yeah, no, but I didn't. So then I go to the parking lot of Hugo's, and a guy wrote a note, and it said, hey, 
uh, sucking dick here in my apartment. Come on over, drop your pants, and drop a load. And Jimmy just saw this note, and he's like, can I keep this note for my stand-up bit? And I go, sure. And to this day, when he does his... Wait, so to this day, when he does his stand-up bit, he pulls out that note about what it's like to be a gay guy. Right. But he calls me like two weeks later, and he goes... You know, I've been thinking about that lunch. You weren't fucking kidding. Like, you're really gay. And I'm like, yeah, that's what I was saying for 40 minutes. And he's like, that's in my stand-up. Like, that's my stand-up bit now. That's yeah. like my primo. And like many years later, he's like, that's still a stand-up bit. You're yeah. still in it. He's made copies of the note so he doesn't lose it. What My takeaway from that is that somebody thought you were cute. I'd be like, that'd make my day. Well, I love, my favorite thing about being a gay guy because I do, I get along with straight guys very well, is just giving them shit about how much it sucks to be a straight... Like, all yeah. my co-workers at Gold's knew about Scruff. Yeah. And, you know, they'd be like... They're like, you know, they'd just be blown away by the idea that you could just, like... It could be that easy. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Glenn, do you have any thoughts about that story? Well, I think, I think Howie is so straight-acting that he would throw ISIS members off buildings. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not talk about my exes. <laughs> I'll lose my head. All okay. right. We're going to wrap it oh, up, right. Glenn, but I'll call you when we're finished. That was fun dropping in. Thanks okay. Thanks for the cameo. All thanks, right. Glenn. Bye. Awesome. All right. That's a great story. Okay. Uh, remind folks where they can see your play. Absolutely. So there's a couple of places. You can go to the website. Okay. Which is miserablewithanoceanview.com. Okay. The tickets are available on brownpapertickets.com. Right. Love it. Um, it's It starts June 6th. It only runs Saturday nights okay. for six weeks. Great. So the the opening performance is June sixth, and then it runs for six weeks up until the second week in July, um, which is I'll get you the date. Sorry, that's okay. Six yeah. weeks from June sixth. Yeah, we can so take Saturday starting out. June sixth. All right, it's all on the website. Go to miserablewithanoceanview.com. Love it. Okay, uh, last question: Why do you write? Uh, why do I write? Because it allows me to understand myself in the world and express myself in, in a way that probably no other way does for me. Right. It allows me to, because my thoughts can be so complicated sometimes, it allows me to understand other people in myself. I think that's cool. Yeah. I think I write because it helps me figure out what I think is true. Because mm. when you have things that you're trying to make sense of and you write them and then you rewrite them, you kind of hone it down until you go, you know what, that's what... That's what I think I believe. Interesting. And that's how you sort of figure it out. That's one reason. Yeah, I mean, just the only interesting... You know, it's weird. Whenever I try and... Uh, I find my best stuff is when it's based on real stuff, but then I let go of it. Like, if you try and document the truth... Right. It's not that interesting. <laughs> right. Like you, you give you it gotta, a little... You spritz it up a little. You gotta, you gotta blow it up a little bit. You gotta blow it up a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. I hope that when you walk out of here, there's a note on your car... <laughs> And well, um, I'm in North Hollywood. Well, yeah. those are, that was before Scruff. Yeah, pre-Scruff. Yeah, people, people don't write notes. No, they don't need notes it's, anymore. It's exhausting. It's, no, who it's has too time? much work. People don't even have pens and paper anymore. People, yeah, no, that would be yeah. like no, it wouldn't happen. Yeah, exactly. You're also in Where the Bears Are. We didn't talk about that. But yeah, good yeah, for yeah. you. That's yes, fun. Thank you. All right, I'm so proud of you for making this play happen. I'm so glad you're going to be opening night. Right? I, I'm planning on it. Do you know better. what you're going to wear? Are you going to rock an outfit? Oh shit! I don't mean I'm, no. no. I'll just wear my suit. Just wear your thing. It's so exciting though. I'm so, I know. That's going to be so exciting to be there. All right. I'm proud of you. I love that we're friends. I love you, and I think you're awesome. Back at you. All right. Thanks, All right, Howie. Cool. All right. Bye. Bye, everybody. 
My thanks again to Howie Scora. Go check out his play if you're in L.A., miserable with an ocean view. It's going to be great. I can't wait. Okay, so this happened. Um, last week I talked about my new mini ebook that came out, Mariner's Club Mixtape, which is available on Amazon and Kindle. And I found out uh, since then that I have the number one LGBT travel book on Kindle and the number two LGBT travel book on Amazon. I don't know what the difference of those things are. I guess is Kindle Barnes & Noble? Maybe that's the difference. Okay, maybe I just... Maybe I just had an epiphany right then and there. But anyways, um, it doesn't take a lot of downloads to be that, but I'm very happy with those statistics, so I'll take it. Um, if you haven't, uh, if you have a Kindle or, or, or read ebooks, um, you might want to check it out. It's called Mariner's Club Mixtape. It's by me, Dennis Hensley, and I tell stories of my cruise ship days. All right, um, that's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll catch you next time on Dennis Anyone. Bye!